Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to. I'm not going to run the title of this panel. Waiting for Cthulhu. Waiting for Cthulhu. Existentialism at the Bar. There we go. Um, so, my name is Desmond Durant. I am the assistant manager over at the Lovecraft Arts and Sciences Council, uh, the nonprofit organization which gets some claim to bringing us all here together. Um, we're in the Providence Arcade. We have lots of very excellent books, should you choose to come get them, including a number written by our guest honor, and by a number of these lovely books as well. So, yes, we will be discussing cosmic horror, philosophy, meaning and meaninglessness, and uh, I'm going to invite my panelists now to run down the table and introduce themselves. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, hello everyone, my name is Maxwell Cold, and I'm a first poet and I focus mostly on cosmic horror and uh, weird fiction. Um, my work's been nom- nominated for Risling uh, and Pushcart Awards and uh, I have a, pro- a prose poetry collection that was released last year titled uh, Oblivion in Flux, which is available now and um, I also have several several uh, poetry collections that are forthcoming. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm Michael Sisko. Uh, I've been writing novels for a while now, most of them in sort of dark fantasy or horrific areas. I'm also a professor of English uh, and I teach at CUNY. Um, and I've written on, on the weird and on philosophy. Uh, so those are my qualifications. Hi. I'm John Padgett. Um, I'm a writer and editor and um, the CEO of Grimscribe Press. Uh, we publish Legadian work or work that kind of uh, is in conversation with Legati's work. Um, I'm also the, the longtime creator and, and uh, webmaster at Thomas Ligotti Online, uh, which is actually a few months older than Google is <laughs> at this um, And I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you today. I'm Les Klinger, uh, the editor of the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft and a bunch of horror anthologies and uh, a lawyer by day, so obviously I know a great deal about existentialism. <laughs> All right, um, so uh, one piece of uh, housekeeping, we are having the panel recorded for the Legends of Tabletop podcast, so if you would like not to be recorded during the Q&A session, you know, wave a hand or, you know, state that in You could write your question down. Could even do that. Leave a record nonetheless. Um, but yes, uh, we can make sure that that gets edited out before you. All right. So, I suppose since this is a panel um, named for Cthulhu, we might as well start with Lovecraft. Um, when I reached out to you all, I brought up the question of dealing with reality, quote, as it should be, 
versus reality as it is. And uh, I was thinking in particular of a line from one of Lovecraft's letters to Frank Belknap Long, where he's giving Long a hard time about being Catholic, specifically. Um, and he talks about why it is that he prefers the Protestant, Puritan, you know, old fusty tradition as opposed to any of the others that are available to him. And he says, part of the old Protestant tradition it's the only tradition an American can genuinely hold by inheritance, involved a ruthless sweeping aside of shams and a rigid quest for truth at any cost, no matter whether it overthrew everything in church and state that went before it. So, I think at the heart of one of the existentialist questions is this question of what really is and what you do with it afterwards. But um, I'm wondering how, how you see reality itself as one of the objects in the assessment of meaning. You know, just an easy one to search. <laughs> Oh, I don't have enough coffee for this. So I guess, so I guess to, to regurgitate the question, I guess so. So it's more. So the question is more: what is what is reality as it, as it pertains to cosmic horror? Yeah, in a way. Let's, let's go with that. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so, so, so to, so to try, so on a, I guess on a, on a, on a, on a surface level, and I'm just, I'm just putting this up to bat, and then we can go from there, I suppose. Um, you know, and also maybe from an existentialist standpoint, it's more about um, the, the meaning that, that we give the reality, and I, I guess our, our justification of, of our place in, in that reality. Uh, and, that's I guess you know asking you know, asking that question, and you know I guess from a maybe from a from a cosmic horror standpoint, that's that's how that's how I would that's how I would attempt to try and understand that that question at first. Um. So I if it, let's just look at Lovecraft's take on it first. Maybe I think Lovecraft was fascinated by history and he particularly had this idea of an arc of history progress and de decay that the rise and fall and looking at so I mean he was always keenly aware of history and so you look back at the sort of hypothetical medieval person as we reconstruct them in the present they are in the center of a fairly neatly defined universe, God at the top, Satan at the other end, and uh, everything revolves around us. And then you see this series of scientific discoveries which totally destroy that point of view. We're not at the center of the solar system. The Earth is not 6,000 years old, it's billions of years old. So the scale of the universe, that first cosmic scale, now becomes something that's too big. We're lost in it now, we're not in the middle. So now what? Now where are we and how do we orient ourselves? There doesn't seem to be any way forward 
from there. And so Lovecraft tended to sit like, you know, he says, we, in the Call of Cthulhu, we were in a little island of ignorance and we weren't meant to travel far. It's better to stay back here to cling to these traditions, even if they are myopic or wrong. I mean, he certainly wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe in Puritanism. He just, what he relished was any attempt to maintain continuity over time and to hold on to that little world that was very comfortable. And he liked, but he also had to write about characters who were confronting the disappearance of that world. Uh, and getting, is that feedback from me or much? Anyway. So he's creating monsters and situations, scenarios where you could kind of get to the point very quickly. So instead of having to write, you know, like a whole novel about it, you could write a short story and it's just a monster, but then that utterly breaks your frame of reference. And if that could be real and then all my all bets are off. I have no idea where I am, and that's that's actually a very modern or even modernist kind of predicament. You know, pretty much any character in a modern novel, their key characteristic is they're totally at sea and completely lost and kind of screwed. So I, that 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 seems to me like to be where Lovecraft dovetails with cosmic horror. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Call of Cthulhu, I was, I was thinking about the name of this panel, uh, uh, Waiting for Cthulhu, which of course is uh, a reference to uh, the, the famous play by Samuel Beckett, Waiting for Godot. And um, Beckett's definitely one of my favorite writers. And, and um, you know, uh, as, as you may know, uh, in Waiting for Godot, these, these uh, two characters, Vladimir Estragon, are, are are waiting for this person, possibly God, uh, um, who never arrives. Um, over years and years, they wait and wait, and uh, it never happens. Um, and uh, as in a lot of Beckett's work, like like Waiting for Godot and Endgame, everything feels like. It's ground to the very end of existence. In the play Endgame, which is my personal favorite, um, the the world is apparently over. Uh, All life forms, except for the 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 four uh, characters and maybe some uh, maybe a a flea, um, are are gone. Something catastrophic has happened. Cthulhu might as well have come, and yet uh, the absurdity and hilarity of the situation in both Waiting for Godot and Endgame is that um, just a couple of people can keep the, the microcosm of society alive. Uh, the, the, the absurdity and apparent pointlessness of society, uh, they, they can keep it going. Um, and uh, that's, to me, kind of uh, has always been one of the, the great consolations of, uh, uh, of cosmic horror, but of uh, weird fiction as well, is that the um, thinking of the worst sometimes happen. When the great old ones awaken and destroy humanity, uh, there's a freedom in that. 
um, Lovecraft even mentions the, 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 that freedom. Um, there's no more work, no more responsibilities, no more suffering from dysfunctional relationships, no more conflict, no more of our hardwired sense of meaning in our own identities and accomplishments. Um, so it's a, it, it, it's a very um, it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy, I think, and um, and that's kind of where my thinking starts on it. So Lovecraft was very interested in the science of the day, and uh, of course, this is really a time when physics uh, changed everything about our worldview. I, I think he was particularly interested in the idea that um, things aren't what they seem, that, that there's more to the world. From Beyond is the perfect story illustrating that, where the character suddenly can see things that he had no idea were there before. Uh, beings and rays and strange creatures and all that, and some sort of not another dimension, a dimension that's part of our own dimension. Um, and without belaboring it, I think that was kind of a metaphor for Lovecraft too. That there's a great deal to the world that we don't see, we don't understand, and if we do, it may shock us out of our boards. Um, but uh, it's important that we understand that there is that stuff out there: uh, atoms, molecules. Uh, X-rays, all the things that are flying around, as well as baby gods. All right. Um, <clears throat> try to write in the thoughts because from beyond is always fertile ground for silliness as well as serious. <laughs> no. um, it's not as it's not as scientific, say, as Herbert West reanimator. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder how these Lovecraft protagonists meet all these doctors. They're just like seem to be cropping up left, right, and center. Um, but uh, so I think from beyond actually is not a, a a bad place to sort of start with something that I think uh, John was alluding to. That if you look at Beckett and Waiting for Godot and Endgame. Uh, you have the meaning that is generated from within human relationships. One of the things that Lovecraft's protagonists are not generally known for <laughs> is their, you know, multitude of, of personal friendships and, and ongoing social engagements. Um, and so... If we can take a moment to to uh, ascribe meaning to a kind of human interdependency, do we see isolation or loneliness as an integral part of the cosmic horror experience? I, I think so. I think that, that cosmic horror you know, isolates uh, individuals because it sort of 
as a rule, it's taking you out of the ordinary state of affairs. So that, I mean, in Lovecraft's narrators, I mean, we don't have to stay with Lovecraft, but he is sort of the, the pattern maker for a lot of the fiction. Uh, very often are people who have willfully left or, you know, or who somehow had the opportunity to avoid an everyday life of the usual sort. They don't typically get, have jobs or families or anything like that. And, but, and they actually pursue discoveries on the margins and they're, they're bored or they feel limited or even oppressed by the ordinary and the mundane and they're contemptuous of it and they want to escape it. And so they go looking for what's beyond it and they find it. And then, you know, then they can't go back. You can't go back because other people can't see what you've seen. You saw a color that nobody has ever seen before. It's from it's the color out of space. You've been to beyond and then you can't really come back from that. And so then that's where madness, I think, comes in. This idea of that's what it does to you. You saw the truth and you left the cave and you can't you can come back in and try to tell people what you saw but they won't get it and so it, but it, what's curious is there's this on the one hand there's the comfort of staying within the confines but on the other hand as you point out there's this need to escape the confines mm-hmm. of the ordinary and that, that that's a dichotomy I think you referred to earlier that I, I find that's a tension in his work that helps generate plots and generate ideas stay in go out stay safe find out what's going on and so they often have an almost suicidal need to know I mean remember in the lurking fear that gem where he like he, he crawls into a grave I think he's he's scrabbling underground he's crawling through camp, you know, into, just to find something it's like that's that's pretty strong curiosity um, and so it's already madness in a way uh, this desire to know or to go outside and so I think isolation, madness, those things connect, I think, in his work. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up color out of space because I've always found that to be the saddest of, mm. of Lovecraft's stories. Um, mostly because the, the people that it affects the most just have no idea what's going on. And it's incredibly isolating and horrific what's happening to them. Um, at least in something like *The Whisper in the Darkness*, you know, you've got you've got the bait, you know, and you've got somebody who's willing to take the bait mm-hmm. and 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 try to go all the way or almost all the way uh, to find out what's going on. Um, so that's the yeah, that's the isolating part of of cosmic horror in in an existential sense. Whereas you have a, a, a contemporary cosmic horror writer uh, like Gemma Files, who uh, um, wrote a story called This Is How It Goes, um, in which uh, it's, it's basically an apocalyptic story uh, on a cosmic scale. Uh, I won't get into spoilers, but it's interesting because uh, at one point, her pr- protagonist actually says, you know what, after all of this happens, I don't need any psychiatric medicine anymore. I, I, I don't need my antidepressants. I don't need anything for anxiety. Um, uh, you know, it's down to bare bones survival. Um, so all of these the, these things that seemed so big um, in the real stable world uh, have suddenly been destabilized. Uh, 
uh, and are finished. Um, and then you have uh, the, hor the horror of uh, cosmic horror on a microcosmic level, like Ligotti's The Bungalow House, in which the protagonist finds out that by the end that there truly is uh, nowhere to go, no one to know, nothing to do, and nowhere to go. Uh, I may have said one of those twice. Um, but you, you, you get what I'm saying. This is fascinating to me because in, in Lovecraft himself, we have these tensions. I mean, on the one hand, everybody likes to think of Lovecraft as this recluse, this guy who is just a hermit and all that. And yet the truth is that he has warm and close relationships with his aunts. Uh, that he has a wide circle of friends in which he writes very sociable letters. They're not just letters about literary theory and what he's writing. They're, these people are real friends. And yet, he is almost paralyzed by the fear of ending up in an asylum. Uh, I've talked about this before. That this is, to me, the, the tightly coiled spring driving him in what he writes. And so the stories are kind of an exploration, I think in some ways an exploration, maybe almost a consolation to himself, of what that kind of isolation would mean. And the consolation is, well, we're all truly that isolated uh, because we're just little insignificant ants in the cosmos. So if I end up that way, I'll be just like everybody else. I'm just making this stuff up as I'm saying these words. And so. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think what's interesting about all of this, and to 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 John's point, what's 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 interesting about um, you know isolation on a on a cosmic horror standpoint, um, you know, on 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 a micro level, is you know, uh, cosmic horror doesn't you know, cosmic horror has has a name. Like you can say Cthulhu's name now. Like it's not some if not some creature in you know in, in, in the void floating off in you know in, in space now. Um, and in and, and the name itself isn't so much terrifying as, as we've all sort of noted as as it's more terrifying to just be alone or to be um, you know uh, more on almost you know to modernize it in a sense to be um, uh, you know I'll, I'll say you know mental health. Um, I mean, like, uh, as, 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 as an example, um, you know, to feel that, 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 that heavy weight of, of something bigger than yourself that is just pressing, you know, pressing on you until you feel as if you are just going to crack, uh, for, for lack of a better um, uh, metaphor, just to kind of, um, you know, and the nameless thing could be, it could be mental health, it could be climate change, it could be, it could be anything at the, at the end of the day. I'm glad that you that you mentioned mental illness because I actually wanted to ask everyone here a question, and, and I'm going to answer them myself. Um, how many of you today are struggling with or have struggled with mental illness? How many of you have? struggled with or are struggling with the mental illness of a loved one. How many of you have found relief in the arms of cosmic horror? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's it's a weird paradox, isn't it? I mean, the uh, so and and for me, Lovecraft was really kind of a gateway drug in into that world um, because paradoxically. Um, seeing these destabilizations of forms, either either human forms or on the big scale, uh, forms of society, humanity, everything, is consoling. It's, it, it, it's, uh, and there are lots of different reasons why, and that's what uh, led me to Ligotti as well, which, you know, paradoxically, the, the bungalow house that I, that I mentioned, where he, where the protagonist finds out how alone he is, that's the story that most made me feel like I wasn't alone. And, and that's that's kind of the magic and beauty of, uh, of cosmic horror for so many of, uh, of us weirdos. I think there are other drugs, though. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I mean, first of all, I was going to start answering your questions, and how many here are writers? Um, or wannabe writers, or trying to be writers, because there's a lot of overlap. And it's not just the genre. I mean, the mystery universe, uh, crime fiction genre, is in it, 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 it's a, this is a weird, excuse the pun, analogy, but it's about making order out of chaos. And that, in a, with a slightly different approach, is what we're doing in weird fiction as well, is trying to take we say is cosmic horror and grapple with it and sort of understand it or comprehend it or at least talk about it, um, bringing order to that chaos. Um, so you got to expand your, uh, your your sphere of uh, you, you know, it's interesting, though, because so, so much weird fiction, uh, people who, who don't care much for weird fiction are, are constantly, uh, you know, uh, complaining that it doesn't resolve, you know. I, I don't understand what the the mystery wasn't explained. This um, this this is leading quite nicely to one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Is for question. example, I mentioned Long earlier, and you know he wrote um, a great story. Uh, it's the, the Space Eaters. Yes. Right. Which. Literally resolves at the end with the sign of the cross. <clears throat> that is the magical sigil which compels the alien entities from beyond away. <laughs> and I was so frustrated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that sort of that the the bring up the the crime fiction is is very interesting because I think that weird fiction in general and and detective fiction I mean you have the weird detective genre um, but there is this this question of the great mystery right whether it's who killed uh, you know Mrs Jones next door um, or you know what is the exact nature of reality, you know, you're doing the same thing, you're looking for clues, you're trying to put the story together. Um, but that question of resolution, I mean, even within horror fiction, is something, you know, 
I don't read Stephen King novels for a variety of reasons, but one of them is that I do find it kind of frustrating to go through an entire story just to kind of have all the pieces set back up at the end. It's like, if I'm going to do that, it's going to be two hours, it's going to be a slash movie, we're going to have a good time, and then we'll be done. Um, <laughs> but is a lack of resolution, you know, is is the existential nature of cosmic horror tied to not just the quest for answers, but then what you do with the answers you get and sort of the preview of where one of the places I want us to travel briefly is that um, I think certainly Lovecraft and Ligotti to a certain extent, um, one of the things that to me makes them both hallmarks of the traditional weird fiction genre, but also of a of an exceptionally white, male, middle class kind of, you know, or functionally middle class uh, viewpoint is that the story ends in madness or death. There is no moving past the revelation, right? Whereas compared to something like the genophile story that you mentioned and, and a number of other stories that she's written, oftentimes the question becomes, okay, the reality paradigm has been completely annihilated. Everything I thought was true isn't, but I still have to get up tomorrow and go to work or make sure that my kid is fed or, you know, just, just get up at all, full stop, which is one of the things that I find most exciting in the new weird as we move away from the more, I don't want to say conservative viewpoint because I don't think that's fair, but the uh, dominant voice that we've had quite a bit of in genre fiction. Don't tell Lovecraft he was middle class. <laughs> but I think in Lovecraft you see some stories with resolutions and some without. I mean, Call of Hulu has a resolution. The guy, now, now that he knows, he moves on and he sort of gets on with his life, I guess. And it's clearly, by the way, a mystery. I mean, it's very, he's a detective. Um, others end badly, yes. Uh, you know, melting into a puddle on your doorstep is, is bad. In there. <laughs> but, uh, but you'd agree that there's a lot of, of unknowns even in, in the, of course. the stories that have kind of neat endings. I of mean, course. It, 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 it's sustained by the mystery. Yes, but my, my point is it doesn't have to be, they don't all end in death and disaster. Some of them end with, okay, my life is now totally different, but I'm going to just, but I can keep going, knowing the things that I probably shouldn't have ever wanted to know that I now know. Um, and I mean that's look at the shadow out of time. You, you list a whole bunch of stories shadow that have that uh, that have those kinds of endings. Even even the shadow of Ritzman, yeah. yeah, where basically the guy says, "Oh, I'm a fish." Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my grandma. Yeah. 
yeah, from from his point of view, it's a happy ending. That's yeah. what's what's chilling about it. I guess what I'm thinking of here is that you know what what distinguishes a philosophical problem from say a technical problem. You know, cancer. Okay, that's is that a philosophical problem or a technical problem? It's a technical problem insofar as you're trying to cure cancer or treat treat cancer. But you don't cure philosophical problems. You don't. And it's not that you can't answer philosophical questions. We do it all the time. We have solutions of all sorts. We've got wonderful books, thousands of them. But the thing is, they all say different things, and they all make compelling arguments for those answers. So which one? Uh, And what that tells you is that these are problems that are chronic and endemic. They don't get solved permanently. You get insight but you you ha- you work you live with them and through them and in them. You don't fix them or solve them. Uh, you, you know, if you try to, it's like so many Lovecraft's narrators are trying to figure out who they are. Like I'm going through New England doing genealogical. Uh oh. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but you know that. I mean, if you go back enough further along in your family tree, ancestor to ancestor, eventually you're going to get to things that aren't human. That's what evolution needs. Uh, Oops. <laughs> so what does that mean? Um, you mentioned a thing on the doorstep. Now this, I'm not sure if this is correct, but there are, I think there's a place in the story where it's implied that, that remember, it's Asnath Wade and Ephraim's inside her body. It's never her. Uh, but how do you know that's Ephraim? If he could do that once, he could have been... How do you know that was even ever a human being at all? It could be someone who's just been leaping from body to body and was Ephraim Waite for a while. So who are you talking to on that car ride? What is that sardonic voice, Mm. that sneering voice talking to you? And it's this radical unsettling of identity that happens all over the place in Lovecraft. In Call of Cthulhu, title of panel, Cthulhu is referred to as a high priest. High priest of what? In Mountains of Madness, okay, the city, the horrors, the shuggeth, but as they're flying away, there's something worse even further back. Danforth saw it as they're flying away. There's always this scaling up. So Lovecraft is always very careful to say, this is bad, but there's always a worse thing further back that you didn't even know is there. Yeah, and I'm not going to tell you about. Right, I'm going to hint that it's there, but you never reach a full resolution. So it's like, yeah, you figured out who Cthulhu is, but who's Cthulhu the high priest of? And And so that's a whole other dimension that you don't even understand. And again, it's like that expansion of the universe that happens as you begin to look out at it and realize you know, it's not human scale. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger the more you think about it and it's harder and harder to place yourself in. Um, you know, the, the only thing about that that, that that came to mind when you, know, when you, when you mentioned this was, you know, I, yeah, I, I think I think it's also interesting to take into account, you know, when you know the the period, you know, the, the period in, in history when 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 Lovecraft, when you know, Clark Ashton Smith, when when they were writing, uh, you know, this idea of resolution. Obviously, I I think um, I don't know that these philosophical questions would necessarily change. Um, probably, you know, us, you know, when when um, when we're speaking through the, the the lens and the voice of marginalized folks as well. You know, I think the idea of resolution is definitely different. As someone who's Jewish uh, and, and gay, you know, I think the idea of resolution is 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 something that is much different compared to Lovecraft's. And so, I think that's um, you know, his, you know, historically speaking, I think that's that that, that that's also something. Um, again, probably one of those philosophical questions. Um, so the. I think that I think that's fair. I, I get asked a lot about. Why is there so much intersection between 
fans of Sherlock Holmes and fans of Lovecraft. And, and obviously, there, there's been a great deal of crossover, uh, in, whether it's in gaming or in fiction. Um, and I think it is about that resolution thing that when you look at, especially uh, Victorian crime fiction, and but much of it later crime fiction too, it's like, okay, we've solved the problem. Uh, Lovecraft doesn't ever give you that. You, it, the, it may be a solution in the sense of, okay, I'm going to put my foot in front of the other one and just keep going, take another breath and keep going with my life. But it's not a solution. <laughs> or certainly a re-solution, a resolution. Yeah. Yeah, the outsider finds out who he is. Yeah. <laughs> that problem yeah. solved. Yeah. yeah. He knows. <laughs> but, whoops, that's <laughs> a whole other host of problems after that one. <laughs> and that kind of brings me back. Um, it brings me back to two things. One, one that you said uh, about... Lovecraft's, you know, obsession with with staying out of the asylum, Um, and and also um, that that kind of that kind of takes me back to uh, absurdism as well, and and how so many of those characters are are um, either very delusional or uh, e- either either by artifice or on purpose <laughs> uh, or, or, or um, involuntarily and, um, and, and and that brings me back to um, uh, a quote from from Eugene Ionesca, uh, the great absurdist. Um, but even if I know what governs their trajectory, if I know the rules of the movement of things and how things are organized and how certain mutations, transformations, gestations take place, even if I know all of that, I shall only have learned how to get along after a fashion in the enormous jail, the oppressive prison in which I am held. What a farce. What a snare. What a booby trap. I mean, yeah, we're, we're here. I mean, Love Trap may have wanted to stay out of the asylum, but the asylum's pretty big. Well, I mean, I think perhaps now it's time to tackle the, uh, the question I'm sure the audience is dying to know the answer to, which is, um, what, what does it all mean? Why, why are we here? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> um, but you, we have perhaps nominally distinguished between existentialism and absurdism, however lightly here. Does it matter if you're looking at creating meaning internally versus rejecting the notion of meaning completely? Right. How would you do that? Like, how could how would you reject meaning? I mean, wouldn't that mean something? Because like that's the thing, like it, it like that's the trap. It's like you have to mean something. It's sort of like not like a choice. Like the meaning is gonna happen whether you like it or not. And so it's not like it, it not that all to say that there's one meaning. 
that's the, the but there is this meaningness uh, that this sort of just goes with thinking about things or having experiences it's just built in and so the then the question is the problem is no one's right <laughs> you can't you, you or you know what's right uh, it's all very circumstantial like you said we create meaning you know we produce it and we constantly produce it and reproduce it and so it just becomes a question of how mindfully you do that how aware you are of that and and you know actually realizing that it's weird because you're doing it right now and then you realize wait it's weird and sort of that's that's sort it of what the, it does make sense that it's weird yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's strange because um, before the panel I was I, I was writing down notes um, and, and and thinking about uh, about these things and and, and meaning and um, and what we all have in common uh, and when I say all of us, I mean all of us that are here uh, at this convention. Um, weird fiction readers and writers. Um, you know, I think more than more than most uh, genres, uh, we um, we do focus on the inherent weirdness in everything around us, and 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 and. I don't think that's normal, <laughs> you know? I, I, I mean, no offense, but I mean, we, we all are, are, are interested in what a lot of people turn away from. We see the, something that is uncanny and strange on the street, and uh, we don't turn away. We, we investigate. And um, and it, it turns up in discussion and 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 in arguments and uh, and, and humor, you know, right? And I mean, it's 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 often funny um, and it's often a consolation. I, I know that for me, coming to Necronomicon, uh, this is my third Necronomicon, but it's always such a relief to be around all of you. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's, I, I think part of that is due to our focus on, on these things that, that other people naturally quail from. Um, dissolution of self and forms, disruptions of day-to-day -day reality as a, a, a relief. Uh, or a release, at least, at least imaginatively speaking, um, and our mutual understanding of this, uh, you know, leads to kinship. It's as if the acknowledgement that we're so frail and 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 temporary and prone to destruction and disease, cosmic or not, uh, it reminds us, as with the conference right now, that we're we're not alone no matter how painfully absurd our life situations become. And as everybody knows, the last three years have been nothing if not disruptive and absurd. Yeah. This is heavy stuff. I, I guess, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, what are we here for? Um, I don't mean here, here, I mean here. Uh, I, I guess if I think about, I mean, I'm thinking about my own life, what am I here for? I, I, I feel like I'm here to 
leave a mark. Um, and I think that's what everybody wants, is some, some sort of mark. Whether it's children or uh, siblings or loved ones who remember us, um, who think well of something that we did, and that's our mark on the world. And my wife says, why do you want to come to Necronomicon? You know, to see a lot of friends. Um, and because that kind of friendship gives you that sense, too, that there's a mark, there's somebody that you're connected to in the world. So, I mean, I, I take a much more mundane approach to this, I guess. It's not deep philosophy. Yeah, it's nice to come here and talk to a lot of friends about interesting problems and interesting questions and all that. But it's not the questions that interest me, I humbly admit. It's the friends. Yeah. No, I think it's both. I, I think those are, it's part and parcel uh, of why this community is so special, at least to me, um, and, and, and why it's so easy to make friends in, in such a situation. We're going to sing Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, come to the uh, existential philosophy panel for the, uh, for the philosophical discussion. Stay for the, for the hugging. <laughs> but I mean, I think probably another thing that a lot of us have in common is that we were bullied um, at, at some point in our lives. Um, and that we did feel like the outsider, you know. Yeah, um, I, I was called weird before I wrote anything weird. <laughs> it's the hair. <laughs> mm. so, now you're bullying me. It's Okay, yeah, all right. Thanks. So I suppose now I'm going to have us play a little game of uh, definition. Um, which I was thinking of uh, a recent random interaction I had with somebody on the internet. Don't go there, it's a, it's a terrible place. No. <laughs> um, but I mentioned that I was thinking of rereading Michael Sisko's Animal Money because I read all 700 pages the first time and I still don't really know what happens. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> me, me, neither. me neither. That's like the whole thing a dream, maybe, who knows? It's great. Um, and yes, and then a, a, a nice gentleman with a YouTube channel offered to explain it to me. <laughs> well intentioned. Um, but I think this sort of gets to, to perhaps something that we are circling around, which is the difference between uh, meaning and intelligibility, right? The ability to you know, that, that meaning in, a, in an existential sense is, uh, you know, affective, whereas there isn't a rational explanation for much of what cosmic horror deals with. Um, and so, is, you know, is there a, a, a path charting that's despite, you know, love, the, the, the grand tradition of, of atheism and uh, scientific interest and, and all of those things that we often consider to make up both science fiction and the more science fiction elements of the weird, is the philosophical element about actually moving away from those things completely 
to try to build different types of understanding. I'm asking yes or no questions, which is terrible, and I apologize. Mm -hmm. I don't think Lovecraft, I think Lovecraft is the essence of rationality. Uh, I think it's out of the box rationality. It's, oh yeah, it's an elder god. Uh, oh yeah, it's those beings in, in from beyond that we couldn't see. Um, but it's all very rational in the sense of, it's not total chaos, it's not dice throwing, uh, which he rejected, this whole idea of randomness in physics, right? Um, it's their rules. We just don't know them. Hmm. So, I don't even want the yes or no answer, but I apologize. No, 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 I'm saying I feel bad because I keep asking yes or no questions, which are harder to answer. open-ended. And we could be wrong. <laughs> so, so I think, um, I had an answer on this, that um, that's okay. So, I, you know, I guess in terms of, uh, like, like a system, you know, I mean, Lovecraft never saw his, his no, Lovecraft never saw his, his, his gods as, uh, like, uh, as like a pantheon. Um, uh, you know, I mean, not, not, he never saw them as anything that, that was to be deified or anything like that. That was very much like August Lot that really took that and, like, really, really, really uh, Christianized them and, you know, said, like, this is good or evil or any, or, um, so I, I guess I guess um, I guess for me it's more about uh, um, what, whether that whether that's like a justifiable uh, system of, of, ra- of rationality I guess you know, with his with his um, with his uh, uh, anti pantheon if you will. So when you say uh, justifiable system of rationality, are we talking about? Like morality, as in good versus evil, are we talking? Because when I perhaps uh, went too quickly, I was thinking intelligibility, like literally, when Lovecraft describes a lot of things, it's not entirely possible to get it, right? I mean, Young Salva, the three-lobed burning eye. I've been trying to figure out what the three-lobed burning eye is for a while now, and I still don't have a good answer for that one. Yeah, yeah that's about pushing language to its limit. We're trying to reach the limit of what can be expressed. Uh, and so you don't see it in your mind, but you do have a sense of a limit experience that going to the maximum capacity for you to experience intensities. Intelligibility has to do with, a, with codes. You know, a code defines what's intelligible. So you can have computers who famously follow codes religiously and produce total nonsense. Right, so intelligibility and sense are different. Sense is always something that sort of arises out of a field that's larger than the particular sense you're making at any given moment. There's always more sense, or more, more sense than meaning, I guess you could say, and that's why nonsense, like in the Lewis Carroll meaning, like Lewis Carroll type nonsense, isn't just gibberish. He didn't just write ooga booga. You know, he wrote things that were that 
took you right to the heart of a kind of quandary. I mean, Deleuze writes about this, like things can't get bigger without also growing smaller because they're still smaller than they will be as they continue to grow bigger. And <laughs> so, and of course your eyes cross and your brain starts to fizzle when you rethink that, but that's that, that, but it is logically correct. It is intelligible, but it doesn't make sense. And so it's when you reach those moments where you have things like the solution, right? Oh, I have the answer. Well, what's the answer? I appear to be a rotting cadaver who's returned to, oh, what? And, and so you got your answer, buddy. <laughs> Satisfied? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about, um, there are rules. You're playing by a bunch of rules. You just don't know what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's the horror of not knowing the rules. Yeah, because there's no horror there if there aren't any. If there aren't any, or the horror is different if there aren't any. And if there are rules, but they're unintelligible, then, then you're in like a Kafka zone where I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I've been arrested for a crime that hasn't been explained to me. I'm under arrest, but I'm not in jail. Corporate I'm, I'm big corporate horror. I'm just walking around. It's like I'm just doing the thing. Like, I'm doing, like we do this, right? Uh, and so you can either be conditionally... Con, what is it? Conditional acquittal or indefinite postponement? Those are the two options. Yeah. Um, the, so the the the, the resolution is never. You know. You, okay. Fine. You're acquitted for now. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know. Or or maybe you'll be acquitted, or maybe you won't be. But as a lawyer, you'll appreciate this. He was Lukovka was a lawyer himself. Uh, so yeah. I mean, God, this is this is the thing. He was acutely aware of the distinction between intelligible codes and things that actually, you know perfectly intelligible codes that don't make any goddamn sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's where the existentialism comes in. That's, that's where the intersection is because from an existential point of view, uh, we acknowledge that we don't know what the rules are. We don't know why we're here. Um, they're... they're any kind of meaning that there is is we we agree is is meaning that we make for ourselves, um, um, you know. It, it, and, and I think that this is something that Lovecraft uh, struggled with himself. I mean, he was. It, it, I mean, he was so structured in in his day to day life uh, and so rigid about. Um, um, his belief system, and yet at the end of the day, he acknowledged that he was complete materialist, and that in the big scheme of things, nothing mattered. Um, that's that. That's a. So on the one hand, things mattered very deeply to him, and on the other, not at all. So that's the weird. That's the weirdness. That's the absurdity. So we are down to the last 15 minutes of this panel. So we uh, are going to leave all the panelists hanging and open it up for questions. It looks so unbelievable. People would get uh, news reports of the school shootings or the shootings, and then they, they, they watch it and uh, hear about the shooting, and maybe 
Prince London, your work is staying in the first branch of FBI. So, alert somebody or search your name on the law. I'm not sure that I understood the question fully. Yeah, I, 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 I said something about this on a panel yesterday. Uh, that my crackpot theory is about nightmares. Why do we have nightmares? Uh, because they're practice. They're rehearsals for how we're going to deal with the bad things in the world. And yes, I, I think that's true of a lot of war fiction is it's the writer trying to deal with it or trying to help other people deal with something horrible and get their arms around it and not get comfortable with it, but at least think about it. It's a theory. <laughs> um, it seems in that cosmic horror I read, and I haven't read everything, uh, every character, like, well, like you said, the Colorado space. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. The Colorado space is a perfect example of that. I mean, you do have peripheral scientists who are very interested in figuring things out, but the people who are actually affected. They, they don't have any particular need to know. They're just suffering. Well, it comes to them. Right. It's, a, it, it's something that happens to them. So and and uh, so, yeah, I think that, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that there are a number of, of cosmic horror stories that, that don't include, you know, kind of a, a, a curious um, uh, protagonist, but one who, you know, is in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> another another good example is, da uh, example is Dagon. Or, or, mm -hmm. or, yeah. Because um, that, that's, that's really just all about tone and mood, and it's really just the, the, the narrator is just stuck on this giant monster, um, this giant island with a monster, and goes, goes nuts by the end of the, the, the story. So we had this question about reality, um, and we've been talking about asylums and Lovecraft, of course, and Dr. Francisco looks a lot like Sutter Cannon. I gave up this question. There's a line that we need to paraphrase, but it's about consensus reality. The idea that reality is just kind of what we all agree to be. So, so if reality is kind of just what we all agree to be, is meaning or the search for meaning or the imposition? The I don't know. I guess the problem here is I, I can't just decide where where I am or how old I am. Like I can't suddenly decide to be I'm I'm ten. I'm ten. You know. So it's like you can try. It just doesn't always work. So it's 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 it, you know. Otherwise we'd be God, right? So we we don't have. And, you know, we're, there's an impotence in these stories that, that gets highlighted and underlined that you know, we are helplessness uh, in the fa you know, powerlessness and the the failure of your efforts to control and define and explain. So yeah, we have a consensus reality, but it's false. <laughs> so and in a sense, we're all. Uh, it, I think you know, for Lovecraft, I think most people. I mean, you know, he's arrogant. 
you know, he thinks of people I think as normies and they just have their regular mundane lives and so forth and they, they go to work and so forth. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't have any human feeling, but there was there's a trace of this aristocratic sensibility running through his work and more than a trace, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's a sense that, well, the, the, the children need their little fan, their stories about what reality is. And then the grown-ups know the truth and they keep it from the children. And so this is a way of the grown-ups signaling to the other grown-ups that they know better. And so uh, I think he was aware of the idea of oh, a consensus reality, but as, a, as with emphasis on the con element, right, that there's a consensus reality that's often extraordinarily con- uh, useful and convenient uh, for, for the people who make it. Um, but then when you drill down into what is actually real, then we find that actually we're profoundly helpless to define or, or explain the real. Because we really only encounter the real when we collide with it out of nowhere. And it's, a sh- it's always a shock. Yeah, I think, and, and on the other side of that too, I, I think about that Gemma Files story that I was talking about earlier, where, you know, there is this cataclysmic event, you know, on, on a worldwide scale, and, and suddenly things that were very important to us uh, that, that we would call consensus reality, family, country, you know, religion, etc. all of those things disappear. Um, it, 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 it becomes, uh, it, it literally um, uh, changes the way we think about everything. Um, it's kind of a cool concept. <laughs> all the way in the back. Make jokes of, uh, of of all of it. I was going to say the opening of the Shunned House, right? Even from the greatest uh, horror, seldom is irony absent. Right. I'm badly paraphrasing. I really apologize. That's very bad. <laughs> that's fine. You did fine. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's the you know there there's an idea like when I was a teenager, first reading Lovecraft, everything was just very, very serious to me. I mean, every one of these stories, I didn't see anything the least bit funny about it. And as I grew older, I, I, I realized that the, the camp was built in from the very beginning. I, I mean, specifically, I mean, he, he, was, he was writing for, mostly for a pulp fiction audience. Um, and so something like Herbert West, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Well, humor is by definition almost um, breaking the rules. It's about 
we know the rule that the person in the joke doesn't know that they're walking down the street on a normal day and they don't see that the manhole is open and they fall into the manhole and that's pretty funny because we're outside and we know that the rule is that he's going to have a disaster he doesn't know that so that's lovely. Yeah, so looking from the ethics saying those dummies don't know that the rules they think solipsistically are the right rules, they don't know that those aren't the rules, that there are bigger rules that say those rules don't work. Yeah, there's a wonderful passage at the beginning of the, the Silver Key. Randolph Carter loses the Silver Key, and uh, you know everybody told him that his dreams were puerile and so forth, and he'd sort of forgotten that actually everybody's dreams are puerile. <laughs> the ideas of normal reality are puerile. Uh, everything is just images in your brain anyway, and so uh, who's to say which are better and which are worse? And that, that you know, so getting so that would be the condition of someone who's lost their ability to get that joke. Mm-hmm. He's gotten too too. Uh, he's lost his way out of dream, and you know, dream is always a kind of uh, uncoupling from reality, but we're still in familiar places and seeing sort of familiar things, or you know, like the the object of the dream quest is right out there. <laughs> Providence. It's that vista that he saw. He just he thought it was a fantastic otherworldly place, but what he really wanted was to be a kid again and stand out there and look out at the sunset and and, and capture that sense of yearning. And so there's a profound irony that's like, okay, here you are in the dream world. You're talking to cats and ghouls are coming and, and stuff, and you just want to go home. And it's like, and it's like you still are, you're still yearning for something, but you're there, dude. You made it. You're in the dream world. And like, but all the yearning, I still yearn. But you're there. And, it's like, and so there is an irony there that that would be a case where it splashes back on the narrator. So it, sometimes the narrator is archly looking at like up like Pikmin, right? Pikmin is sneering at everybody because he knows what's down there in uh, those fools and so forth. But then sometimes it splashes back on you, mm-hmm. on the narrator. <clears throat> going to say we're all familiar with the uh, well-known horror series Looney Tunes. A little bit louder. We're taking this You know, just in a nutshell, it's like, you know, uh, we just starting with the we've gone from the we go from this sort of idea that we simply receive information passively to the idea that we are actively constructing experience 
that it's a production of our activity. And it's not just a question of assumptions and, and opinions. It's deeper than that. It's structural. That's what Kant was arguing, that space and time are the transcendental aesthetic. They shape that you can't have an experience that ha- doesn't have space and time. But you can't know that that experience is anything other than the way your mind basically shapes what whatever data it gets. But he never denied that these things exist. He just said, you, we can never confirm that, you know, what you see as a cube and what I see as a cube are the same thing directly. We can only do it indirectly through things like measurement and correspondence and things like that. And then Hegel is basically extending from that. And so, you know, is that in Lovecraft? I think Lovecraft... I don't know, because I think Lovecraft believed that there was objective reality that was materially intelligible through science, and that if that wasn't the absolute truth, it was the best we were going to do. But then he would think, well, what if that was all just wrong? You know, and then what? And so then that is terrifying because then you have nothing. You don't have empirical evidence. You know your experience is already deeply questionable because you need that corroboration externally. He takes so it's like, well, what if that's wrong? Like, what if there are colors you can't see, dimensions you don't know about? That, that your math is all. What if you not? If all geometry is is just a convenience? Uh, and so he actually finds a way to to, to mine that for terror for horror affect that's i think that that he makes that scary the prospect that empiricism won't work uh so i think that's that my that's my best shot at an answer. <laughs> we have three minutes who's got the shortest question <laughs> i don't think they compared notes um so just maybe a little bit different, but i feel like cosmic horror relies on a frame shift in scale scope to reality and the weird Questions are rules about reality. Where does surreal work in that puzzle? That's a good question. Three words and less than I mean, surrealism really explicitly attacks established, uh, like socially determined. I mean, at least if we're talking like where the word came from in France and that, you know, like, and then that had a lot to do with like responding to World War One and those circumstances, right? You know, how, what, how do you write poetry after World War One? Uh, you know, well, you can do it, but it sounds like, and that's what your poetry sounds like. Uh, because what are you going to say after that? Um, so let's see. Surrealism, though, you know, is like uh, I think with horror is often a sort of oniric, the dreamlike horror. Sometimes a surrealistic story is not really, a, sometimes surrealistic horror is not really that horrifying. Sometimes it's actually more just un, uh, eerie or unsettling mm. and in a dream because of its efficacy in evoking a sense of dream, uh, which is something that seems real at the time until you, you wake up. Hmm. All right. On that note, I think it's time for all of us to wake up. And we're going to wrap this up. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.